Great coaches ask great questions. Best days at work are the days when the light bulb goes on for somebody else. Welcome back to On It, Not In It with Todd Eppert, the owner of Focal Point Business Coaching of Ohio. Now we meet again. Hopefully your last month was pretty good. Uh, yeah, it was great. It was great. It's starting to get warmer in our community, so I'm getting out a little bit more walking, getting to start to play some golf. It's been great. Oh, there you go. You're a golfer? Yeah, absolutely. Where's your home club? Uh, Weatherington Country Club in Westchester. Okay, there you go. We're Coldstream members ourselves, so nice. both are great clubs, absolutely. But all right, so last week we were, or last month we were in talking about the lemonade stand. I think we named uh, the competitor Jimmy, and I was Nick, who's running the lemonade stand. And I was about to make that retirement decision, the exit strategy, I think you called it. Yep. Now, do you work with a lot of people that are in that exit phase of their careers? Yeah, so when I started my business, um, I probably should give you a little bit of history on this. So when I was in my last corporate world, which we talked about in the first episode, I was a COO in a private equity-sponsored business. And um, the reason I left was not only family issues at home, but also because I spent the last year prior to making the decision to leave uh, closing more companies than I did mm. growing companies. Mm-hmm. So we had done some acquisitions. They didn't work out that great. I think we closed three or four in the same year. Um, and it was the fourth one. The last one was in December, right before Christmas. I felt terrible um, and left the business. So when I started my business, one of my dreams was to help companies build and grow so that I could, it, it sounds a little bit of a joke, but uh, to pay some penance for some of my past oh, sins. Yeah. <laughs> right. Dang. Uh, That's some so, guilt you have there. Yeah. So a little bit of guilt, uh, <laughs> yeah. but, it, but it also gave me the right focus and the right energy because I love families. I love the history of family business. Um, you know, um, I love walking around my local community and seeing my local small businesses. Um, and I hope they transition from family member to family member. But if they don't, I want those family members to get out of the business very successfully to where they can get the money that they need because they spent their life growing that business, that they get that money they need to then live comfortably the rest of their life. So outside the family option, what other options do you see typically with exit strategy? Oh, there's a ton of ways to. So, so yeah, when you have a, if it's a, a mom or dad that owns the business uh, and they want to give it to their kids, that's a family, traditional family transaction. So if Jimmy had a kid, pass off to the kid. Yep. Okay. Okay. To or no, sorry, if I had a kid, pass off to the or, kid. Or maybe Jimmy has a brother named Alex. And uh, Alex has a son that takes an interest in Jimmy's business and comes alongside and works for him. That's another family transition. It's just not direct line of family. Gotcha. Right? It's a nephew, niece, something like that. Someone in the family that you trust. Yep. Happens a lot in, in bigger families as, they get, as the business grows and generations transition, transition, transition. Uh, the next level probably is you're going to sell it to some kind of an outside investor. Mm-hmm. So that could be a strategic buyer, which would be someone that, um, using the Jimmy example, is a beverage company and they see Jimmy's... Um, Jimmy's um, site stand as a way to eliminate a competitor or to grow their capabilities in the beverage business, right? That's a strategic buyer. There's going to be more synergies there. So for instance, they might need, not need to buy new equipment. They might be able to get rid of some of Jimmy's equipment and, and save it or sell it off or whatever uh, because they already have a beverage business. That's a strategic buyer. Private equity buyers, another one. People hear private equity. And again, I came from that space. They should never be afraid of private equity. Just understand what you're getting yourself into. Mm-hmm. So what private equity businesses, they don't want to run the business. They want to own the investment. So generally, if a private equity buyer comes in, need, they need a management team to move forward with the business to continue mm-hmm. to run the business. Mm-hmm. And they can. there's a lot of rewards for the people that stay behind um, as part of the management team. 
Um, so it can be very attractive for certain types of exits. That's another good example. Oh, that's awesome. But generally, it's going to be either a family transition or some kind of an outside investor. The two biggest outsider investors are going to be um, the strategic buyer, the private, private equity, equity, or some kind of an equity-based firm. And then the last one generally is going to be in that partnership model. So um, you know, many, many times, um, and there's some industries that really do this pretty standard. Um, so if you think about like the dental industry, it's really common for an older dentist to bring on a young partner from dental school and work in the business for a while. And then the older partner will eventually sell the business to the younger partner mm. and the doors never close and the office keeps going up. And so, there's even, there's no marketing overlap or anything to do at that point. Yeah. Cause, Cause no they know knows. all the clients, they know all the customers. It's a really easy transition. So the dentist that I went to when I was a kid, um, he's been retired long ago, but I remember his partner coming in when I was probably in high school age and his dental practice is still there. Um, now, how do you figure out what's best for each company? Uh, that depends on what the owner wants to do. Um, it heavily resides on what the owner wants to do. So, for instance, if the owner has no family that's interested in taking on the business, well, their options are pretty simple. they got to sell the business. Mm -hmm. If they have family members that are interested in buying the business, are they the right family members to buy the <laughs> business? Can they carry on the business? Are they the right people to come into the business, right? Um, you know, so that's, it's really going to depend on what they plan to do or what they want to do. Now that has to be a difficult conversation because I mean, most of these business owners I'm assuming are working with, they've spent a ton of time, energy and resources in growing this business and they're kind of passing their baby off either to private equity, an outside company or someone else in the family. How do you manage that conversation? Yeah. So, um, so I'm going to put a plug in for a, a wonderful local program that I volunteer with. Um, it's called, it's at the Gehring Center with the University of Cincinnati. It's called the Next Generation Institute. So I'll plug that program. It's a great program. Um, uh, it's unique to our city. Um, although they do it, some of it Zoom so they can do it outside of the city limits. But I talk to a lot of coaches around the country and I've never found a duplicated program anywhere in the U.S. Uh, but it's great at helping understand those things. But the, the factor there is communication, right? That's where it all starts. And so family meetings, family conversations, um, and you got to ask yourself some really difficult questions. So for you know, some of the easy questions to ask in those cases are, if, if I were just a business owner, as an example, like I am, would I hire my son, Colin, to be a, a member of my team? More importantly, would I hire him to be the next CEO of my company? Right. Mm -hmm. So you have to ask those questions. And if the answers are yes, then, OK, what development needs does Colin have mm -hmm. to be able to do that? And how do I fill those gaps? Just to take that on a personal level, too. So I'm part of family businesses. We kind of talked about going yep. into it. And my my when my follower hired me back in 2014, he put me on straight commission in the sales role. And his basic role was I don't want to fire you. So mm. either you're going to starve or you're going to make it. Right. Because of the exact same thing, because that conversation of do I trust my nephew? Do I trust my son? Do I trust my brother to come into this thing and run it? So how percentage wise do you see a lot of people going towards the generational family business or do you see a lot of companies going towards a private equity? So um, or a strategic buyer or a strategic yeah, buyer. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. yeah, it's OK. An outside buyer. Outside, outside buyer. investor. Yeah, there you go. Um, so I, it, percentage wise, I think a lot of small business owners hope and wish that their kids would want to take on their business someday. There's others that look at it and go, I don't want my kids to have to go through what I went through. Right. So that's a good question to ask themselves. It, it's hundred percent dependent on them. Um, and so I can't answer that. I don't know the statistics of that. I do know that generational transition is harder and harder and harder. The more generations that flow through the family business. And it kind of goes back to the concept of when you're the entrepreneur and you start the business, 
your next level of kids have seen how bad it was for mom or dad starting that business. They've lived it. Um, so when they take over the business, they understand it. But by the time the next generation comes along and it's a successful business, they just know the results and the, the, the nice vacations they get to go on or the golf club they join. And so it, I hate to say the word entitlement, but the more generations that pass through, if you're not intentional about it and you're not talking to your family about it and you're not sharing history with your family members, entitlement can become a big part, which is what causes family businesses to fail no, that's in a huge. lot of cases. That's huge. And I think we should spend an entire episode kind of talking about the generational thing. So I kind of want to talk about the outside buyers, so the sure. private equity and the strategic acquisition kind of side of it too. In my mind, if I was owning this lemonade stand, I have an empire and I'm getting bits and pieces with doing very little work inside the company because I've used you and I've hired a strategic team beneath me that's running most of their operations. What's stopping me from just sitting back and taking a draw on the company for the rest of my life while the team runs it? Uh, that's a great way to do it. That's a lifestyle business, right? That's a great way to just continue to collect checks. So do you see that? Because I guess for me, I in the lemonade stand, I'd be if I sell it, let's say I sell it for one year worth of revenue in my pocket. At the end of the day, I'm kind of like, oh, cool, I got a year. But if I can sit back and do nothing, continue to collect that over and over again, is that not the better decision? Why don't, uh, why don't well, more business owners do that? Yeah, so here's the, here's the real response to that. So there's a couple things about it. So um, first and foremost, um, this will bring up the topic of how we generate value, enhance value in the sale of a business. So when you go back to the value of coaching, this is one of the ways that we do that. Sure. So um, I mentioned in the last podcast that owner dependency model. So when you're, the business is too dependent on the owner, mm-hmm. the value of the business drastically is hit. It mm-hmm. takes a big time hit because it's just if you leave, the business goes away or you're stuck in it forever. Mm-hmm. So two things that I have seen in family business. Those folks that say, I'm just going to keep my team in place and serve on the board and I'm just going to go to Florida and live the rest of my life and collect checks. They still have the stress. They still have the liabilities in some cases. They're still Their name is still on the wall. So when things happen and it's not going the way they want it to go, um, potentially they could feel like their family legacy is being damaged. Whereas if they sell it and they get out of it, it's freedom, right? I got my check and I got what I needed. So the real question is, is how much money do you need to live at the beach and do what you want to do for the rest of your life, right? And so there are specific things you can do to enhance the value of your business. And uh, we can talk about this in depth in later episodes, but there, in general, financial performance matters. So the more revenue you make, the more valuable your company is. But more importantly, how repeatable is it? How improvable is it? You know, what is the gross margin? What is the revenue model that you're working on? Mm-hmm. Secondly, what's the growth potential? So go back to that lemonade stop. If I've got a 50 cup lemonade stand and Jimmy's got a 300 and the volume is 350, there's not a lot of growth potential. Right. You hit market Taking share. volume from Jiminy is a lot harder than it is to just find another thousand cups in a very robust market, market space. Right. Yeah. right? So growth potential. Um, the next one would be dependency on specific customers, suppliers, or employees. So if your whole business model is centered on one customer that provides 60 to 70% of your revenue and you leave, that's a big risk for the next That buyer, relationship's right? gone, right. Same thing with a supplier or a key employee, right? So those things all tie into that dependency on those one, one things. The more you can diversify that, the more valuable your company's gonna be. That's huge. Yeah. Um, so other things that matter is how your re- recurring revenue happens. Mm-hmm. So in the business model, um, depending on how you get your revenue. So if, if your revenue is driven by one-time sales every time, car lot, that's right. a really, really hard thing to repeat. So it's less valuable. 
versus the model where you have a captive audience. Let's say they buy a product from you like a razor mm-hmm. and they have to buy blades. Mm-hmm. That's more or valuable. Or a subscription service. Yeah, subscription or, right. service or a subscription service that auto revenues. There's a lot of different models of revenue, right. but the more repeatable guarantee, the better off it's going to be, the more valuable it's going to be. Sure. Um, you know, there's other things that we would look at, like customer satisfaction, satisfies customers, come back, they also uh, refer you, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the last one is if you can build a monopoly control is probably a great way to add value to your business. And a lot of people would say, I cannot build a monopoly. I'm a product or I'm a product-based business. Mm-hmm. I sell coffee. Okay, whatever. We're sitting in a coffee shop. Mm-hmm. They're a product-based business. How can we make their service their business rather than their sure. coffee their business? Mm-hmm. When you can master that, then you can create a monopoly. To Chick-fil-A. Yeah. They exactly. figure out a way to turn chicken sandwiches into a global empire. Exactly. Going back to our lemonade stand, did Jimmy figure out a monopoly control in that industry? If so, it's going to be really hard to take Jimmy's business. That's so interesting. And you're saying without the owner in that role, if they if they do the entire, I just want to collect the checks, you guys run it, they lose the, the ability to, to leverage that. Well, yes, they lose the ability to maybe impact the day-to-day. They may lose the culture. And then go back to your other example about when a uh, pandemic happens or mm-hmm. when the, the FDA comes out with a lemonade is dangerous to your soul right <laughs> it's gonna kill you probably will right so so okay here i am happy and my business is a 10 million dollar revenue company making a million dollars a year and i'm collecting a check every year for 500 grand sitting on the beach in tampa doing nothing sitting on a board then the pandemic happens and my business goes from 10 million dollars to three million and now you're making and now i'm not collecting a check and your lifestyle shot. Versus, think about two years ago, wouldn't it have been great to sell your business in January of 2020 and collect a check and be in, Jan- and be in Florida? Yes. Your risk is off the table. That's why you need to think about it. That's huge. Yeah. That's a really, really good point. And I right. think more business owners need to think about that because that's kind of the default, right? If, if I can just get more and more hands off, then great. I can get money for doing virtually nothing. But with that comes so much extra and added risk to it. Yeah. There's, there's so much risk when you just collect the check, if you think about it. I mean... Even absence of a pandemic, let's say you lost a key person in your management team. Who's going to go fill that role? Mm-hmm. You are. Yeah, and do you <laughs> so want to get back on a plane? Right. right, yeah. No, that, that's absolutely yeah. huge. So yeah, I, we, I will give you an example. We, we, we purchased a business uh, when I was in the private equity space. It was back in 15, and the reason the owner was back, who was in his 70s, mm-hmm. was because um, he had kind of turned it over to a guy who was supposed to be buying his business over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the transaction hadn't really gone through and it wasn't really moving forward. And his key partner decided to take half his employees and start a competitive business down the street. Awesome. Great. Michael Scott Pipper Company. Right. Got it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And now this poor guy in his 70s had to come back into the business. Now he's up against the wall, had to sell at a really bad number to a private equity number, got a nasty earnout that he never earned, right? That's what happens. And a partner's on the road recapturing all the revenue. Right down the street. Oh, buddy, that's crazy. Right, that's why you want to sell your business when you can get your business sold. No, that makes a whole lot of sense. That makes a, that makes a whole lot of sense. So without revealing names or anything, do you see, have you worked with someone through going towards a private seller? Um, I'm No, most of my transition work right now is working with families transitioning to families because everybody that I'm working with right now is in the process of transitioning to a family member. Gotcha. Um, and that's by design. To, yeah, technically I had a client um, that was in the process of going through that. We walked through the process and then she decided not to uh, follow through with the ad, with the process. Gotcha, that makes sense. And I think that's such a big investment and such a big play too, that's a hard decision to make. So having someone like you to bounce those ideas off of, I'm sure is kind of a, Correct. a crucial part of it. Now you have a couple letters behind your name that looks specifically at this, right? 
Yeah, so I'm a certified exit planning advisor, CEPA. Uh, that comes from the Exit Planning Institute. Uh, I'm also a certified business coach and a certified executive coach, as we've talked about before. So right. Those sure. are the letters, probably, that you're referring No, for to. sure. I think the exit planning, that's such a that's such a big part of business that people don't think about, right? And we see all the time and seeing the different strategic ways for it. Just, just looking at, for example, Ford, where they did today, I think it was, where they took their company, they restructured into two separate companies. One's electric, one's gas. They rebrand, they did all that kind of stuff. We, as the the people who are reading that article, are like, oh, okay, cool, whatever. But for them, that was a huge deal. Pretty massive. Right. So I'm sure we see it all the time when companies are restructuring or in their, when they're applying those exit strategies, big impacts on the bottom line. And guess where they're going to probably be investing all of their new capital? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right? Which makes sense. And right. I would not want to be on the gas team at that point. Yeah, correct. Correct. Right. Although they are probably the cash cow for the business that generates all the income that goes into the electric vehicle business. Right. But right. it's, it's about in the future. Now, looking at the other, and we I don't think we really hit up this, but it kind of ties in, was going to the IPO or, or going and taking your company public. That's another way you can exit your business, by the way, is so through IPO. run me through, like, let's say I have the best limited empire in the world. I'm up to 30,000 cups a day. I'm ready to take it public. What's that look like for a business owner? Um, that's a little out of my quote-unquote pay grade from the perspective of I don't know how to take a business public. So what I would probably do is, in, in a lot of cases in these things, Look, if you're exiting your business, there's going to be a team of people that we're going to rely on. So I'm not an accountant. So therefore, I'm going to want to get with a CPA and figure out what's the best tax strategy. How do we avoid paying as few taxes as possible? We're going to want to talk to an attorney, bring somebody in to do buy-sell agreements and all kinds of different things. Maybe some insurance, a wealth manager person to come along. And if you're going to go with the IPO option, I would want to bring in an expert in how to take your business to the IPO. However, I will tell you, We'd still have to go through all the things you're talking about to maximize the value of your IPO. That makes sense. So you're surrounding yourself with the right people. Yeah. How do you value a company? So I use a software package um, that I don't do uh, certified valuations. So I'm not a CPA. Right. Most CPAs that do valuations can certify them. Um, I can get it very directionally correct. And it's based on your last three years of financials, Mm -hmm. uh, your growth rates, your margins, how you compare to the industry. Uh, what industry that you're in. So we use the NAICS code mm-hmm. and put that in. Uh, we might do some projected financials. If you're if you're a newer startup and you've had good first couple of years, well, what are you projecting to be in the mm-hmm. future years? Um, and then it, we go through a questionnaire that looks at all those valuations. How dependent are you on one single supplier or one single customer? And some of those are going to be value detractors. Some of those are going to be value adders. And what you're going to end up getting from my software tool is a range of value of where you are today based on how you scored yourself. And then what things do we need to work on to move your value? And if you did, we can use levers and we can move things around and say if you, for instance, if you went from a score of 20% on owner dependency, which is bad, to 85% on owner uh, owner dependency, we could actually see what that would impact your valuation. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a huge part of it. That's amazing you even have that tool. Yeah. Because I've always heard it's like it's a market multiplier times a year of revenue or something. Well, and that's what the valuation is going to be based on. But the range is what's your EBITDA and then what's the range of multiples that you could trade in based on where you are. Gotcha. So generally when you work with an exit planner, the statistics are you're going to get about 71% more value Mm. in your business just just over average of what they've seen so what you're saying is shark tank is wrong shark tank is wrong uh, because usually it's like hey your business is worth this or 30 percent for this right? yeah well and they they're just good at doing the math right, right? they right. they know the industry that you're playing in and they're saying they're probably look shark tank they're looking for good investments they're like private equity guys mm-hmm. so they're looking at your business and they're saying okay nick's got a 
million dollar idea, he needs capital to get it to that point. So he doesn't even really have a business model most of the time in Shark Tank. Yeah. They're looking for the investment. I got a laugh from the audio engineer, Alex, here because <laughs> I hate Shark Tank. Gotcha. Because like, I was an entrepreneurship major. I'm working on my master's in entrepreneurship right now. I'm huge about small business startups, and I cannot stand Shark Tank because of exactly what you just said. Well, they kill, steal, and destroy. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. We'll make some sharks. But anyway, that's fine. Now, last question about looking at strategies. If we look at the generational things, I think we can spend probably an entire season talking about just the generational side of it. What's your exit strategy? What's my exit strategy? What's your exit strategy? Do you have, I mean, I assume you have one being a business coach. Um, yeah, so, so my general exit strategy, I will bring in associates when I'm ready to grow to that level. So I haven't gotten to the point where right now I treat my business like a, like a lifestyle business. Mm -hmm. My kids are still in high school. Um, I do have a, a model where if, if something happened to me, I'm protected. Mm -hmm. So I have insurance on my business that if something happened to me, my wife would be taken care of. So that's that's an exit strategy. That's part of it. Sure. De-risking the business and de-risking my family. That's a terrifying exit strategy, but I guess, yeah. But it is what it is, right? right. So that's I've got the worst case scenario covered. So the next piece is going to be um, in the next couple of years, I'll probably add some associates and then I'll bring them on as part of my business and then sell them my business. Okay, so it'd be a yeah. selling So it'd be, it'd be more like the dental example I gave you earlier. Passing Bringing on partners. partners and transitioning to partners. Unless I have a kid that goes to college and goes into work and says, man, I really like this coaching thing. I'd like to learn what you do, dad. Is that, you think that's in the pipeline for you? I don't know. I mean, not to pressure your children in the idea, but I mean, growing a successful coaching business is pretty cool. Well, but what, I will tell you one thing that I do love about this industry is that the generations that are now in the workplace mm -hmm. at the majority, so millennials are now the, um, mm -hmm. are the majority of the workers and Z's right behind them are a big generation as well. Millennials and Zs are way more open to coaching mm -hmm. um, than Xers like myself and boomers before me. Um, so there's going to be a bigger opportunity for coaches in the future, in my opinion. Um, also, uh, because of the generational acceptance, there's less worry about the gray hair, <laughs> right? So you can't see me on the podcast, but I have a lot of gray hair. Not any of my clients care what my hair looks like, right. right? If I was 25 years old or 30 years old and it was still asking good questions, you don't have to be... 50, 60, 70 years old to be a great coach is my point. Hmm. So I think that, yes, one of my sons in 10 years who would be 27 or 25 years old, they might potentially could take over my business. Now, I would, I would argue that a lot of your skill set comes from your experience in different industries in your professional world too. Someone who's scrappy, young and start coming out of college, they're not going to have that. Um, go back to what I started with from the very beginning. Coaching is good coaches ask good questions. Right. So as long as you learn how to coach well and how to ask good questions and how to listen well and how to be observant, um, I think that's the DNA of a coach. Now, certainly I do fall back on some of my own business experience. That's why I do exit planning. That's why I do transitional coaching because of my experience. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, you could do, I mean, think about all the startups in the world that could use a coach that they don't care that you have all this life experience. They just want to be asked questions and help me out. No, that's huge. It's a big part of it. All right. So we talked about the different ways to do exit strategies. And then we also looked at kind of the private equity model, the strategic acquisition, but mostly people buying you from outside source. Next episode, we're going to talk about the family business. I think we're kind of alluding to that right now, of what that kind of looks like. But before we jump into that world, is there any other major exit strategies you see or anything you want to talk about when it comes to how to exit without using your family? You know, um, you just asked the question about my kids, and it got me thinking about who, what makes a good coach and the, the, the credentials you need. So maybe this is a good time to talk about it. Maybe it's not. Let's maybe, do it. Uh, it's so, your podcast. So, yeah. So I think, um, you know, one of the things that I think is uh, dangerous would be, let, let me just as an example, um, would you go to a dentist that 
woke up today and said, I think I want to fix people's teeth and slapped a sign on the wall and said, I'm a dentist today. No. Exactly. So that same thing in coaching. So if you're interested in being a coach or you're interested in finding a coach, make sure you find someone that's been credentialed, that has some good references. They, they have a, they have some things they can share with you of where they're coming from. Right. And I think even part of being the franchise, your part of too helps with that. I think it does. So that's why the franchise can be a really good fit for some people. Um, otherwise, if you're a national speaker already, you probably don't need a franchise. You can probably do it on your own. Uh, because you have credibility already. Right, so it's about building that credibility. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's a great point. So thank you so much for telling us all about how to sell our businesses. I know that that's going to be a major, major issue moving in the next generations. But Thanks, Nick. Till next time. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun.